Are there any prayer requests? Just to continue to pray for Matt. We've been praying for them at home, actually. Bruce is your husband's name. Yes. Yeah. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our lives from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, the kingdom that you offer us, that we carry within ourselves, the great trust. What <laughs> an extraordinary thing. And, and how many religious views degrade it? that you would trust us enough with our free will to allow us to carry burdens that sometimes overwhelm. What a great love that you would entrust that to us. Help us somehow to be glad of those burdens, um, particularly when they get heavy, always knowing there's a grace in them um, for us if we will give ourselves to them. For your presence all this day, I ask a blessing on the work that we do here together. The truth is a grace. Um, what was the words? Unbearable. Um, sometimes it's hard to face. Um, strengthen us with a grace to open our eyes, to bear the light when it becomes bright sometimes. Um, and help us to take what we learn out into the world, um, to make it real in all that we say and don't say, and all that we do. In all things, strengthen our trust in you, particularly at times when we feel helpless. I ask a special blessing on Debbie and Bruce and their son Matt. Help Matt to, to come to a deeper knowledge of himself, to trust in you, um, to know that there's a good in this um, that can stay with him the rest of his life, um, change his life for the better. Um, however heavy the cross is, as he bears it now. I ask a special blessing on Megan. Um, be with her in her struggles. Um, let all of us at times like this when we feel particularly weak um, to find a strength in you that ordinarily we don't look to because we think we're so strong and so sufficient and so often we're not. And I ask a special blessing on Tom and Linda. Let their hearts quiet. Um, give them both courage. And I ask for a blessing on Robbie and um, his wife and their son. Help Robbie turn back to you and help his family um, grow in faith. That will happen. Um, and I ask for a special blessing on Christopher and Kayla. Strengthen them in their efforts to come together again. Um, strengthen in both of them a spirit of humility. I ask that all of us be strengthened in that spirit. Um, we can't do what you've called us to do without it. We offer all these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's do um, the next section of East Coker. Remember, the, the analog of the quartets is music. We're uh, meant to be, um, to th it's almost as if, it's almost, here, let me put, I don't know that I've ever said, it's almost as if 
we're being asked to hear music that happens to have words. Everybody remember that. That just came to me. That's really profound. Nobody's laughing. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> think, think of this as a piece of music. We're being invited to hear music that happens to take the form of words. I don't think there's a better way of putting it because he's named them after musical, you know, uh, a, a musical form. Remember, he, there's four instruments. They tend, to, they tend to break down according to the four principal elements, air, earth, fire, and water. The, the subject, the background subject of East Coker is um, land, earth, I think. Um, each quartet has five sections. Each section has a, a specific theme. Um, the, the, the court, each quartet begins with a certain motif, a theme, and then variations played on it, exactly as it would be for Mozart or Bach, for a classic um, piece, a cantata or a, um, a fugue, something like that. The um, four quartets, um, each one is identified with an actual historical place. It's Eliot's way of rooting it in time. East Coker, remember, is like um, Burt Norton, is an English manor. It actually exists. The difference between the two is Burt Norton, the, man, the Norton Manor, burnt. It is no more. Remember, one of the themes of Burt Norton is things, something survives when something dies. So they're still present. We talked about the still point, how it's visible everywhere, but so that there are signs of something here, of something else, even if we can't see it. So the rose petals, the, the uh, what do you call it, potpourri, you know, they're dead roses, but the scent is still alive. He gave us all echoes, remember, he gives us all these images of signs of something not there. So he's asking us to learn to see through appearances that there's something more there. Behind it all, we know, is this intersection between time and the timeless, Christ. This, the, the issue is, can we find him? Those still point moments, wherever they are. Um, East Coker begins... <clears throat> Um, with that line from Mary Queen of Scots when she went to her execution. I think I said that, didn't I? In my beginning is my end. She goes to her execution. Her last words are, in my beginning is my end. Well, you know, in my beginning is my end. In, and it, it will end, in my end is my beginning. Um, she knows that she's going on to another life. So she faces it with courage and faith. The opening passages are all variations from... Ecclesiastic. There's a time for something, there's a time for something else. There's a time for living, there's a time for dying. So the theme announced in the very beginning is this sense of cyclical repetitions to nature. Things come and go. That's a fact. And if, if we saw it, it would help us. Because it would help us make time peace with bad things when they come. You know, there, we, we can't all... The, 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 the effort to make our life, our home, perfect on earth begins with the turn away from God with Calvin and the social contract theorists. I'll come back to it again. And Marx. We're going to see that in the Laura story because Marx said um, all battles have as an end to bring the peace on earth, do away with all battles and class conflicts. And so it's really a rival to Christianity, but it takes the form of an earthly 
war. Um, and remember the passage, I'll read it again. He's describing the field and the city coming into being and then passing away. And we all know that when, when our bodies go to the earth, return ashes to ashes, that we give the earth a power to fructify and bring forth something else, fruit, vegetables, you know, whatever it is. Out of the earth we came, back to the earth we go. So it's like we're replenishing something and allowing something else to grow out of us, a seed falling to the earth. So that's one of the major themes here at the opening. He turns to that celebration, the village celebration, a couple's getting married and they're dancing together. Remember, two things. One is, East Coker was the manor house of one of Elliot's own ancestors. And the passage describing the marriage is taken, I think, verbatim from, um, who was it, Lancelot Andrews, I think, the Book of the Governor. I can't remember, but it's taken actually verbatim from an old English book. So let me pick up there, and then I'll go to section two. In the beginning of section two, he's describing this strange phenomenon in mid-fall, November when there are signs of spring. You'll see, I'm not going to go into it much, but I, I want you to just be aware of this because in Little Gidding, the last quartet, he does something with what he calls midwinter spring that I think is one of the most phenomenal things in all of 20th century literature. And it's interesting to me because it's like he had a premonition of it, some, in, some intuition of it here, but it wasn't fully realized. Years later, when he does Little Gidding, you'll see it, because I'm going to read, when we get to Little Gidding, I'll read something that I've written on it, because I, th I think it's clear and probably does a better job than I could do it here, just extemporaneously. But he's aware. Uh, Mid-November, there are signs of other things. There's something else there. So once again, there's always more there. Do we see them? Our, remember, not yet, not yet neither here nor there. Where are we? If we've taken the, universe, the Eucharist, where in the world are we? If Christ is in the kingdom and he offers himself and we take it in, where are we? We have all these certainties about thinking this is where I am, I'm here 10 o'clock in the morning. But in actual realistic terms, where are we? Is that a place we can identify spiritually? Um, so he, he's always dealing with these notions to help us make a place for mystery, to not have to control everything. Um, so what is the first major theme? Here, the first one is the cyclical, the repetition of nature, things come into being. It's the ecclesiastic okay. theme. So I'll read on, on uh, the second, I think it's the it's second page, it's the, um, do, you all have, do you all need a copy here? I don't have a copy. You didn't? I did not. Here. Take but the, is that yours? That, I got the book. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I don't have any other. Um, let me just read from the first section, the end of the first section. Okay, um, T.S. Eliot, um, East Coker. In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, on a summer midnight, on a summer midnight, 
in darkness then. You can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing round the bonfire. The association of man and woman in Don Singa signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament, two and two necessary conjunction, holding at each other by the hand or the arm, which he betokeneth concord. Round and round the fire, leaping through the flames, were joined in circles, rustically solemn or in rustic laughter, lifting heavy feet in clumsy shoes, earth feet, loam feet, lifted in country mirth, mirth of those long since under earth, nourishing the corn. There it is, returning to the earth and bringing life to other things. Keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing as in their living, in the living seasons. Go down, dawn points and another day prepares the heat and silence. Out of the sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. Remember, um, he, he gave that um, description of being in the path um, in the first section. In my beginning is my end. Now the light falls across the open field, leaving the deep lanes shuttered with branches dark in the afternoon. And the deep lane insists on the direction into the village. Here, um, in the passage that I just read, dawn points in another day. Everything has intention. Dawn points. To what? The lane intends. It's directing. It's going somewhere. Once again, we're getting all these images. There's a purpose behind things. Are we aware of them? Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence. Section 2. What is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring and creatures of the summer heat and snowdrops writhing under heat and hollyhocks that aim too high, red and gray and tumble down, late roses filled with early snow? Thunder rolled by the rolling stars, simulates triumphal cars, deployed in constellated wars, scorpion fights against the sun, until the sun and moon go down, comets weep and leonids fly. Hunt the heavens and the plains, whirled in a vortex, that shall bring the world to that destructive fire which burns before the ice camp rains. And just remember, every one of the quartets will have a section on words. And I've tried to stress this forever, all along. Our use of words directly links us to the word. It's our use of words that brings clarity, that helps us to see, and that also helps us to see those things we can't see without them. How many of us see DNA? How many of us see electricity? But words make it possible to give images, visible images, to invisible realities. So what we do with words matter. And very often we find out that we struggle to find words to say what it is we want to say, and then realize that they're no longer useful because we've gone beyond that to try to say something new. So the struggle with words is ongoing, particularly if we take mere mystery seriously. Now, Eliot's aware of that. That's why he, he's, 
devotes a section to words in every one of the quartets. He knows it's connected to the word. We take it for granted. But the analog of our words is the word. The fact that we can use words means in some ways we're struggling to be with Christ, to find truth. And particularly to see, to use images, visible images, to help us see invisible realities. Yeah? Pretty extraordinary. And we take it for granted. <clears throat> so here's the rest of section two. That was a way of putting it not very satisfactory. Paraphrastic study in a worn out poetical fashion, leaving one still with the intolerable wrestle with words and meanings. The poetry does not matter. It was not, start again, what one had expected. What was to be the value of the long look forward to, long hope for, calm, the autumnal serenity and the wisdom of age? Had they deceived us or deceived themselves, the quiet voiced elders, Queefing us merely, a recipe for dead deceit. The serenity only a deliberate beatitude, the wisdom only the knowledge of dead secrets, useless in the darkness into which they peered or from which they turned their eyes. There is, it seems to us, at best, only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. Remember, that's one of the fundamental premises of the modern world. Nothing has meaning unless we experience it personally. What does that do to faith? It absolutely shatters it. Remember, that was one of the misfits' lines. I wasn't there to experience it. We believe that if we don't experience it, it doesn't exist. It just narrow, shrinks the world terribly. At best, only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. The knowledge imposes a pattern and falsifies. For the pattern is new in every moment, and every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all that we've been. We are only undeceived of that which deceiving could no longer harm. In the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all the way, in a dark wood, in a bramble, on the edge of a grimpen, where is no secure foothold, and menaced by monsters, fancy lights, risking enchantment. How many things distract us because we give too much importance to them? It's like an enchantment. Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. Remember that line, because it's going to bear so directly on the flowering Judah story. Their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God. How much of what we do is an effort to hide from God or to escape the cross? Even as Christians. The next section is going to be one of those dark sections. We saw it in Burt Norton. I'm just going to read the opening lines, the third section. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, teachers, teachers. Well, let's go to the stories. Okay, just briefly. Um, 
All the stories that we've been reading are stories of people and cultures um, that have turned away from God. And we're seeing that they're all in ruin. I mean, it's a pretty dark world artists are revealing. And remember, if we take seriously what I said in the beginning, that prophecy is very often showing us the things we don't like to see, there really is a prophetic element to all of these stories because the artists are showing those things about ourselves as moderns that are very much a part of our character. How many of them see us? If the writers are prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, in the really dark, Jeremiah's pretty dark. Um, if they're revealing things about ourselves like the Jews, most of whom didn't hear, do we hear? <coughs> do we Don't take we kill the prophets? Huh? Don't we kill the prophets? Yeah, yeah. <coughs> and remember what I said, very often they take their own lives. It's just a, it's a, it's a frightening, anguished burden that they take on. From the time, we remember, we, we read up through Dante and then Shakespeare, but it, after Shakespeare we saw a, a very dark world beginning. Moby Dick, in some sense, marks that for us as Americans. Moby Dick, as I suggested, I think is a prophetic work. Ishmael is a Jonah figure. I mean, the, the, the link with prophecy is explicit there. Jonah comes back to tell the Ninevites. The, one of the fundamental questions we're left with in Moby Dick is, do we hear him? Um, he told us the Ahab story. What did he reveal about ourselves in that? And what did he teach us from all the changes that he underwent? Remember that, I mean, it's amazing to watch him get free of Ahab's quest and then the way he explores nature and when he comes, his humor and his love of things, wonderful qualities. We saw that's the beginning. That, that moment, that book, comes at the, the crisis pitch in 19th century. Because mid-19th century, two traditions are colliding with each other. The biblical way of reading the world and scientific. That's why in all those chapters, Melville is giving us both. <clears throat> so that we're aware that two traditions seem to be incompatible with each other what to do with them. That's one of the struggles we're left with in modernity. And then after Moby Dick, we did Go Down Moses, its modern counterpart, because in that, remember, Go Down Moses, Fogner's dealing with the Isaac Covenant, not the Ishmael Covenant. And we get the chosen one, and we, we see how dark that is, because when I discovers the sins of his ancestors, he renounces his inheritance as his way of trying to do away to resolve that problem and then late in the book discovers even though he did that it didn't change the world and it's, it left us with the question does that mean his choice was futile or fruitless? I myself don't believe so any more than I did with Christ. The fact that the world wasn't radically changed with him does that mean what he did was a failure? I don't think so. It just means we have a choice to make and, and we saw with Ike that what he was left with was um, he, I mean, a, a real trial for him. He was either going to be disillusioned, he was inconsolable. What do you do at that moment when he discovers it's happening again? That Roth um, had sex with a black girl and produced a boy. Um, what do you do? Um, Faulkner doesn't tell us, but in the very last story, remember Go Down Moses? Molly's the one, interesting, who pulls that book together. You know, her, her, her grandson is a murderer, she has to live with that suffering. 
the, the, she knows that one of her children is a murderer. He's executed in Chicago. Um, her answer isn't despair. She says to the newspaper editor, I wants it all into paper. I wants it all into paper. She wants that out because the blacks have a strength, we saw that, that the whites don't. They endure. They're not afraid of things. The, the white respectable world tends to cover things up. She says, I wants it all into paper. So there's this wonderful affirmation of human endurance and struggling and hope, you know, at the end of Go Down Moses. So we saw in Moby Dick and Go Down Moses the two aspects of the American character. And then we entered the modern world full blown with all these, right? With, um, let's see, who do, Welty, Hemingway, O'Connor, and now we're doing Faulkner. And, and in every one of these stories, we've been given this really dark view. And this way of seeing things that I think is probably new to you guys called grotesque comedy. Mm -hmm. And why it's important, because remember I said, Mann, Thomas Mann, the great writer, said, grotesque comedy is the antidote to our bourgeois world because we want everything clean. We're very Calvinistic. It's a sign that we're among the elect. If everything's cleaned and put in order, we're saved. Mrs. May did that. Remember, she, she tried to dominate everything, control everything, and her world comes crashing down on her with that bull. Um, so grotesque comedy is an antidote in the sense that it shows us the widest discrepancy. That's what produces the grotesque. Ironies can be very subtle. They can be really broad and obvious. Grotesque comedy is obvious. You can't miss it. It's grotesque. It, it's Fanny O'Connor's way of showing that whenever good and evil meet, there's no way not to produce the grotesque because it's a violent moment. The question is, do people enter into it? Does it help open them to grace? And we've seen that now in each one of the stories. I hope that's clear, right? Because we, we struggle with the end of the, each of the stories. And you know my own reading. I, 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 Mrs. Turpin clearly gets it because she has that vision. She receives it. But what happens to Mrs. May or um, the grandmother and the misfit is, is more obscure. My, my own reading, for what it's worth, is they all receive grace. Remember when Mrs. May dies, the, the bull pierced her heart, and it said her vision was restored, even though the, what it showed her was um, unbearable. But the description is of a tormented lover. And remember, the bull, in the very beginning of the story, had a wreath of horns, or flowers, when he was in the mulberry. He's a Christ image. He's an image of Christ breaking in on our world when we think we have everything under control. And um, I, I, I suggested the same thing for the grandmother when she turns to the misfit and says, why, you're one of my own. The fact that she can identify with somebody who's evil takes her out of that self-righteous world she's been living in, that innocent world she's been living in all her life. And for the misfit to end it saying there's no fun in anything, when he said the only pleasure is, if you don't believe in Christ, the only pleasure is killing off people. His encounter with her, I think, is going to make his life difficult. I mean, the encounter between the two of them has left them changed. Where, where they're going to go, we don't know. I think that's to her credit as a writer. What we know is they've had this encounter and they can't be the same anymore, even though she's dead. 
So over and over again, she shows us the mystery of grace working in the world in obscure ways, the ways very often we don't see. I mean, once again, it's the value of artists to take us to see those things that are so hard to see for us. So that's where we've been. Um, remember that, because I, I, the Greenleaf story to me is a particularly powerful one. Mrs. May has two dreams. And Laura's going to have a dream. We're going to end our work on these short stories with Flower and Judas. It'll end with a, a nightmare dream. Mrs. May had two dreams. And it begins with a dream when she's dreaming of something eating away her property. She's terrified that, that her whole life's work will be undone. Because she values that more than anything. It's a sign of her success. It's a sign of her salvation. She has this dream of somebody eating away. It's, you know, it's in true. Remember, she's defined by that circle. That circle is the image of self-sufficiency. She doesn't want anybody to cross it. It's her control. So, and it begins with this dream of something eating away at her property and the terror that it, it will undo. Towards the end, she has the second dream and she hears this sound, this noise beating at something and she realizes it's the sun um, trying to break through the tree line and she's gratified that it can't. Both of those dreams are images of graces. The sun, the bull, she doesn't receive the graces. She's just too stubborn. You know, that's, I mean, those are the characters. But at the end, the question is, does she? Flower and Judas will end with a dream. So what, we're, what we've seen is, even though there are these dark stories in the modern world, there seem to be these offerings of grace. They're often in violent occasions, but they're there, and they're subtle. <clears throat> and the writers are showing them to us. We're becoming aware. Let me stop there and I'll, we'll go to the two stories. But any questions about any of, any of this? What we're doing? I appreciate the overview. Do you? Yeah. I do too. I do, I do too. <clears throat> I tend to do them regularly. Yes. No, it I always like hearing Good? It's good. Maybe I should tell Suzanne to stay away. <laughs> Don't, Linda, do you not, you, Remember, you're, you're being, on note, you cannot say that to her. You're being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I missed you. I missed you. <laughs> any questions about any of this? I just wish I could keep all what you just said in my head. Me yes, too. Yes. Me too. I wish it would be imprinted in my head. Keep the characters. We do a mind meld or something. Yeah. mind yeah. yeah. meld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mrs. May, Miss Turpin. Aren't you glad you got all these things in you? What a, truly. I mean, I, I, it, if they're not, then I haven't done my work. Because it seems to me the great wonder, of the, the great gift of all of this for us is it helps strengthen our faith. Why else do it? I wouldn't. I think it helps with some resolve. Say? I think it helps with resolve. Um, because I think, you know, you know what you should do. You, you know what God wants you to do. Or you, if, if you listen, you know what he wants you to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that this helps with some resolve. How? Make connect that for what's please. Because it's... It gives you a perspective outside of you, me, outside of yourself, that, okay, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an affirmation of what 
I already know that I should do. Because you see these people and you see what if they don't, if they fail to do that, how, um, how that impacts their life. Yeah. And if they actually then do do it, how that impacts their life. So, in a, why, in a concrete way. So it's not abstract anymore. No, it's, it's very not. concrete. It's very concrete. Yeah. So why should I be so resistant? Good. I'm glad. Glad. It makes me think, oh, man. I'm See, see put, one of the values for me is that it, it, is that it gives us a, a more concrete clarity. I mean, it helps us to see better, to get us out of a world of ideas and abstractions. Um, yes. into a concrete world. So it, it helps us deal more in a concrete way, more immediately with our own world. Glad to hear that. No, I, I think I've said this before in here, is that there were some data said that when the great books are introduced to a university campus mm -hmm. as reading, the suicide rate drops by 20%. I don't remember you saying, is that right? Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. <clears throat> Because you, you, because like you're talking about, you 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 think this struggle you're you're going through is just yours. Your own. But if you see it in these right. characters, right. These, you know, right. then it, it contextualizes. Right. And then there's some meaning that I'm not the only person in right. the universe fighting this battle. And not only that you're not the only person, but there's a meaning to existence that you might not have any sense of before, because. I, to me, you can't read the Iliad and the Odyssey or you know the ancient without seeing there's this extraordinary meaning long before Christ came into the world. There, it just it's a very different image of man from the modern view of man. It it helps you see that there's something good in us when there's so much in the modern world that says so much of us is bad or wrong or. And I think it helps to give you the courage to do to do those things that that you know you should be doing. Wow. I think it really gives you the courage. I'm glad because you that. see, you know, in, in reading, you see what the outcome is or the potential outcome is, either for bad or for good. Mm -hmm. And you and we with free will get to choose. Yeah. And so it give, it helps give you some courage to, to choose wisely. Yeah, I'm glad. Glad. Sometimes sorry, go ahead. I have a sentence in my notes with did you say this? Uh, Mrs. May dominates and controls to be better than others. Mm -hmm. I don't Something like that. see that as positive, to be dominant and to be controlled. It isn't. It's not. No, I didn't say it's that. Not. I think what I, I don't remember the context, Linda, but I remember one, I, I thought I raised this question for you last time, the difference between her and the Greenlee family. She tries to control everything and dominate. The Greenlee family, I thought, didn't I go do this? Yes, mm -hmm. Yeah, the Greenlee family, I think is Catholic. She doesn't name them, but they met in France. It's a Catholic nation. Um, they go. To, their children are sent to a convent school. But it seems to me it shows in another way. She really belongs to that Protestant mindset of, after Calvin, of dominating, controlling, because it's your ability to do that that gives you the evidence that you're among the elect. Otherwise, you, you're left with this notion: Are you among the damned, or where are you? Whereas for a Catholic, there's that isn't a problem. They don't have to strive. They're not constantly pushing to be better than somebody else. She does. So when you put the two families together, the, you, the, the Greenleaf sons don't fight. The, the Mrs. May sons do. I mean, they're very, they're, they're, and they're, it's interesting, they're, very, they're opposite in some ways, but they're both images of 
their mother. Um, the Greenlee sons don't. They're more at peace. One of the compelling things about this, this stuff for me is they're, uncover they're unmasking America. I mean, this is us. We grow up with this stuff. I mean, I look at my, Mrs. May frightens me because I see aspects of myself in her. No, truly. I mean, I, I've been very competitive. I grew up loving basketball and sports. I taught sports. I still do. I love competition. I still love it. I don't love what people do with it. I love the fact that two kids can go at it in basketball. If I were a coach, I'd have serious things to say about the spirit they bring to that. I mean, my, my son cannot walk away from a, from a game that he's lost without shaking hands. I mean, my, it made it clear. If, if, if winning makes you happy and you don't win, you don't belong in this game. We're, not, we're there to do the best we can in what we do and be gracious whatever the circumstances. To give, to don't make excuses because then you don't give credit to the team who beat, you know, little things like that. You don't want kids to grow. Competition's a fact of life. But the spirit that we bring to it in this country, to always win, that's not healthy. So these writers are all showing us the deepest aspects of the American character. To strive, to get ahead, to be upward moving, to be better than somebody else. God, that's Dante's, I mean, that's where we started, the modern commercial regime in Dante's um, Commedia. Okay, one last thing. Remember that the, this goes to our, the same thing again. I did that very brief review, and I don't want to go back because I want to get to these two stories, but remember that the nature of the, the modern world um, is probably most visible, most apparent in the, in the social contract theories. Rousseau, Hobbes, Locke, I gave you that, remember? According to the social contract theories, man lives in a state of war by nature. By nature, he's depraved, he's violent. The only way he can escape killing himself, or men can escape killing themselves, doing each other in, is by entering into this social contract. The nature of it is a compromise. I won't do this if you won't do this. So it's not based on our nature. And here's the most important point. It's a convention. It's an artificial, man-made thing. If, if it's related to nature, it's related to nature in this way. It, it rests on the belief that man is depraved by nature. So its assumptions about man are really dark. Okay? That's the, that's the modern reading of us. And we've seen this in every one of the works. One of the most telling was the, the rivalry between Macomber and his wife. The predatory nature of that. Husbands and wives are, are in rivalries with each other in the modern world to get a better job, to get ahead. I'd set that against, so everybody's clear on that, yeah, the, mod, the social contract there. I set that against the, the, the natural learning that came out of the classical worldview that in some ways prepared for Christianity. And I gave the example in, in Socrates' apology, Socrates made the point that the, one of the most important things that a man could do for himself was know himself. Number one, to know yourself. It, it's a part of our nature to know ourselves. How well do we know ourselves? Remember, he said that the gods gave out this wisdom that Socrates was the wisest man in the world. 
And Socrates pondered over that for the longest time and finally realized that if he was the wisest man in the world, it was only because he knew his own ignorance. So at the outset of the derision is, it's important that we know our own ignorance if we're to know ourselves at all. Because remember, every dialogue has to do with his encounter with a guy who claimed that he knew everything and then through the exchange of questions, we realized that he doesn't. And people be finally became so frustrated with him that they killed him. Remember, the way out of the cave is by questioning, being, being a, aware that we, there's a lot of things we don't know. That was the apology. <clears throat> the, sorry, Tom. Well, I, you know, the first time I read that, I mean, I was, uh, because I studied to be a priest, I was a philosophy major in right. domestic yeah. philosophy. So I'm reading this in a monastery in Canada during the, during the beginning of the war of Vietnam. Yeah. And I'm reading those dialogues, and I, um, you, I mean, it's an incredible story to actually watch Socrates do, do this. It is so, uh, it's so amazing. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it, it, you can't believe. It, it's almost everybody gets reduced to absurdity. Yes, because he, take, he takes apart, yes. he deconstructs your whole yes. argument, yes. and it all falls. It's yes. just amazing. It's a great gift if you ever have time to do that. Yeah. The two important qualities of that process are called the elenctus, elenctus and aporia. Elenctus and aporia, what Tom is describing. The elenctus is the questioning, the process of questioning, um, and bringing you to a point of puzzlement that you realize you. And, only a brilliant mind could have done that because only a brilliant mind could have conceived of the questions that would have gone to the point and showed somebody they really don't know what they... The aporia is the moment of wonder that it leads you to, hopefully. When you reach a point of realizing you don't know and you're puzzled, that's a healthy, that's a healthy thing because it means it opens you to wonder. In Christian terms, it would be to grace. So... Um, but you're saying that's part of the legacy of classical education. Yes. Of the classes. Yes. Classics. You know? Yeah. Let me put that more strongly. The reason, the reason I'm trying to do this right now is to set it against the uh, social contract theory. Because as you've seen, social contract theory re rests on the belief that man is depraved, that he can do no good on his own, that the ultimate outcome of his actions is destruction. Men will kill each other. They're trying to preserve their own lives. So in, in, the, in the effort to do that, they kill each other. The only way to avoid that state is to come out of it to make a contract. So the nature of the modern mind is contractual. It's very legalistic. I mean, it's so close to the Jewish legalistic spirit that Christ came to take away. If you look at the classical tradition, you've got a real contrast because the classical tradition can consistently shows some good in man by nature. One is he can come to know himself. He can grow in self-knowledge. The second, where I was going is in the Republic, remember he made it clear that the most important thing for all of us is to know the order of the soul, the nature of the soul, and we've gone through that, the rational and repetitive parts, and to mind your own business. This is the most important thing you can do is 
mind your own business, order your own soul, because if you don't take care of things inside in yourself, what are you going to bring to the world in the way of prudence, wisdom, justice? If you didn't do things to straighten out the things that are in yourself, and <laughs> how in the world can, even, even when we think we're most just, I mean, I'm assuming everybody, I mean, I, we look back at those occasions when we thought we were really just and then get embarrassed because we realize how self-righteous we were. Um, The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire. So, and the third thing from the Phaedo, Plato's Phaedo, was um, if the natural end of the soul is goodness, then we have to mind our own business. We can't do anything that would be detrimental to our own souls. One of the principles that follows from that is it's more important that we, um, that we suffer a wrong from another person before we commit a wrong ourselves. That we suffer a wrong, we, we suffer from somebody else before we make them suffer. If we care about the nature of our soul, it's really important that we make it good. So if that's true, then it's really important that we suffer something before we inflict suffering on another. That we, suffer, that we suffer a wrong before we wrong another person and cause them suffering. So hold on, Tom. So I'm just giving you three things. The last one is Aristotle's virtue, but, but what I, what the point of, that I'm making here is that, uh, that I tried to make last week is we learn from the classical tradition before the modern world that there is, there is this inherent goodness in man and there are things that we can do to be virtuous, to be good. Now, Pick that up with Christianity and what it does with it, and you'll see how natural it is to build on it. Put, put Christianity next to the modern world, social contract theorists, and you'll see how there's no place for Christianity in the modern world, given the nature of things. Sorry, Tom. Well, I, I'm just thinking, uh, I, I, rem I remember uh, Merton goes after, um, um, who was it, um, Descartes, <laughs> because of, uh, I, I think, I think, therefore I am. And he says that that that's a misperception about uh, it's a I don't know if I could say it. it's a wrong epistemology. I mean, he's saying that that somehow we get stuck in our heads, yes. like you're saying, yeah. and that whole point about um, I think defining me uh, traps us in our heads, and because it's like uh, and then. 300 years later, actually, um, Sartre is the one that says that consciousness is, the, is a problem. He, he challenges it. It's, 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 it's existence that is, is the Being. Na being is yes. the nature of yep. our. Yep. Now, you see, does, is that, I like, I love what you're saying. I always, I always think of uh, one of the definitions of man was a rationality. Rational animal, mm -hmm. but what you're saying is, uh, it, it's he's that, but because of his soul, uh, he's um, and then he's he's orientated toward good, and that he has and his, that it always involves other 
which is not the case with Descartes. I think, I mean, you're in an isolated world in your own world when you make, yeah. the, the problem with that, that position is that it, it makes um, being contingent on thought. Yes. That's the problem with Descartes. So you turn away from being, which is, according to Thomas, the natural object of the mind, to your own thoughts. So everything in the modern world tends to be a construct of thought. We live in our heads. The way that we look at the world is a function of constructs that we make psychological, physics, I mean, whatever, religion, um, it's a private world, it's a, I mean, we've been looking at it all along. Descartes is one of the great heretics of the body, I mean, to well, a realist. He's, he's called the, the first, uh, what, the philosopher of, not modernity. Idealist. It's so the beginning of the idealist, what we call the idealist tradition. Because you're in the ideas of your head, you're making that the, the frame of reference or anything. He makes being contingent on thought, and it shouldn't be. Um, St. Thomas would say, truth is the conformity of the mind with things, with being. We have to bring our mind into conformity with it. That's truth. Descartes reverses that. He says, the ideas in your head are what determines reality. So we. The connection between us and the natural order gets broken with him. Here, virtue, last thing. Aristotle said virtue was the mean between two extremes. And he argued that out. Um, I don't want to go into it except uh, let me offer you this thought. I'm not sure how much it will mean to you, but we, in the modern world we have no notion of virtue. None. How many people talk about virtue today? They don't even know what it is. Um, um, think, and he, it's so clear if you read the Iliad and the Odyssey that, that Plato and Aristotle got what they did from the poets. Odysseus is having to learn to deal with extremes so that he knows how to deal with them when he gets home. But, but I want to offer this interesting thought. If you think about what that means, that virtue is the mean between extremes that we have to practice, like if we're inclined to drinking too much, we have to cut back on our drinking. If, if sexual needs are too great, we have to, you know, if, if, we're, if we're too shy, we have to, you know, if we're, those sorts of things. We learn to look at our, that. I mean, it would help parents if somebody would just say this stuff because then you'd see each child's different. You know, you, you've got a different struggle with each child because different children have different proclivities, different inclinations, so. But here's the thought I want to offer. I, 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 I can't say much about it, but the church would say, the early church fathers would have said, St. Thomas would have said this, the more you approach the mean and the mystery of it, because that's, even though you can intellectually conceive of it, to actually be that is a much harder thing. But the closer that you move in that direction, the closer, I'm going to say, into that mystery of that tension, that tension point between two extremes, the closer you approach Christ. Because Christ was nothing if he wasn't virtuous. <clears throat> he shows us what virtue the perfection. But if you look at Homer and Virgil and everybody, you already see what natural perfection is. The early church fathers, Bonaventure, who was one of Thomas's friends and rivals, said that the practice of virtue opened up graces, that it helped move us into graces. So you can see how compatible the classical world is to Christianity.
It's rooted in an, in an inherent goodness in man. And that goodness is something we've lost in the modern world. That's why the mod, one of the reasons the modern world is so dark. So let me, let me just leave it there, okay? That's where we've been. You should, have you ever written this fall down? This is <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> What's being, oh. It's okay. being taped, all right. Somebody, you can take that, those sound recorders and write it out and, and publish it in your name, Tom. <laughs> you have my permission. Yeah, yeah, my ability to write, yes. Why do you think we don't talk about virtue today? That is true. It's because science, people. because science replaced, because the true, the real answer, science replaced natural philosophy in the 16th century. And as science advances and people are, it's really interesting because the whole enlightenment period blows itself away. I mean, you see reason destroying itself. So people learn that science isn't the answer to everything. But then it's followed by Freud, who, who has no notion of virtue. And um, Descartes, I mean, uh, Darwin. Look at the modern world. I mean, we're either evolving. There's no form or essence to us. We don't have a nature or constantly changing, or we're defined by an edible complex or polymorphous perverse, but modern world, and, and I, I think the world's beginning to turn away from Freud. They're seeing that there's something wrong, but there's nothing to replace it in the modern, who knows, to, to go back to the past is not what the modern world is gonna do. You know, I, I listen, you listen to all these people on the talk show programs who get really angry when somebody mentions how heavy they are or overweight. And they, the answer to them is to glory in their weight. They, they have no sense of virtue. If people drink too much or if, if people are on drugs, I mean, the, the, there's, there's so little in the modern world to help us be good. Every, I mean, almost everybody in, in America understands most people take drugs and it's accepted. Most people drink too much. Father's constant prayer, pornography. I, I read an article yesterday that said um, that they're trying to pass legislation through the United Nations. The European people don't want to pass the legislation because they want to make a distinction between child pornography and adult pornography. And the reason they want to do that is, um, is because, they, and this was a statistic in America, 50% of American males actively engage in watching pornography. I'm not surprised. Um, in Europe, it's, I mean, it's a much more decadent world. Um, and most pornography depends on bringing young kids into it. So I, I, I keep going, the, my homepage is Fox News because it's the only, cons I, I turned away from the other stuff because it just sickened me to watch this stuff every week. I've made it my homepage. I, I'm not exaggerating. Every other week, there's an image of a woman who's being arrested for sexually engaging with her students. That had to be an abnormality 100 years ago. Now, it's happening weekly. There's no accident in that. I mean, if you think about the way the family's under attack and the relationship between parents and the children, particularly between a mother and the children, what in there in our modern world supports any of that? Take away the natural affections in a family, what's a woman gonna do if she goes into the workforce? The, the increase in, among women watching pornography is extraordinary today. 
That's not an accident. They've stepped into a mechanical male world. I mean, there's very little in the modern world that properly appreciates us as human. There's very little that gives a place to the family. There's no, the, the family is a part of a mechanism, this large wheel that is the modern contractual world, the mechanical world. It frightens me when I think about what our kids are going to grow. I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, what, um, and what their ch our grandchildren are going to face. The, the, the change in the world from the 40s, 50s, and 60s to our time is it's horrifying, just horrifying. Shall we turn to the stories on a lighter note? <laughs> Let's now do that. that. We're I know. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like grotesque comedy. <laughs> okay. I want to do this briefly. I want to get to. I want to get to flowering Judas. Faulkner's That Evening Sun, you know that it deals with the Compson family. There's no mention of Benji, interestingly, and there's an inconsistency which makes me believe that Faulkner wrote this as a short story before he did Sound of the Fury, although it doesn't get published until after Sound of the Fury. Is that clear? It gets published afterwards, but there's just certain things going on here that make me wonder if it wasn't a short story, and, and if that's true, I'm, this is hypothetical, that it became the germ for Sound of the Fury. It, it, it grew out of this sense of this some family. I don't know. That's, that's all speculation. I know. Um, <clears throat> in that, e the title, appropriate, Evening Sun. Right? Life going out. That Evening Sun. Um, we're watching a family in decline again, but in That Evening Sun, the focus is not on the disintegration of a family, it's on the discrepancies between the blacks and whites, the horrible, horrible discrepancies, and um, the discrepancies between parents and children. We didn't do this last week, right? I keep getting confused. Yeah, I did this on Monday night. That's why it's... Was that clear? Yeah, that's the backdrop. Okay, and it, we see it played out in the, in the family. Nancy goes to jail. Stovall doesn't. One of the reasons he doesn't is why? Because he's the local pastor. The, the likelihood is the child she's carrying is his. When she says to him, you owe me money, you know, pay me my money, he's, it's in public. He's being embarrassed. He kicks her, she's pregnant. She's taken to jail. He's not. So immediately in the opening, we're made aware of these discrepancies based on racial prejudices. Because she's black, she, she, so remember the question of justice that I raised this, social contract justice, there it is again, questions of justice that I've been reading. How, how do we, Ahab, going back to Ahab, how do we, the misfit was the, was the figure that brought us most into focus a, a week ago. He can't account for his crime. He doesn't know where to begin. What he's got is paperwork. What we've got is a, a bureaucratic recognition of something, but that's the only evidence. So it's a serious question. I think it's serious for Flannery O'Connor. Can real justice be done in the world? We crucified Christ. We live with it. 
How many Jews were put in jail then? How many Gentiles were put in jail then? Christ went to a cross as a criminal. All the people who put him there. So, and remember, that, remember, this goes back to Plato and the Republic. Plato said, this, this is an, an anticipation of social contract theory. This is 2,000 years before it came into existence. Plato said, Thrasymachus says in the Republic, justice is the stronger, is the power of the stronger over the weaker. Those who have power will determine what justice is. That was his definition. Has that changed? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Justice is the, is the strength of the, of the more powerful over the weaker. Because those in power will determine what it is. There's a social contract theory. We know that, I mean, if you watch movies and read, and read books, that the government's always corrupt. There's already somebody doing something. Somebody's using power the wrong way. That's the modern world. Um, here it is in this story. It was there in the misfit. He couldn't do it. Nancy goes to jail, and Stovall is free. He's a, he's a local minister, too. Um, we see uh, um, hints of the decline of the family. The, the mother is still whining here. I mean, or if, if this anticipates, if this is before, she's whining. When her husband says he's going to walk Nancy home, she says, you mean you would take care of a, of a Negro before you would <coughs> take care of me? that whining and self-pity. And it becomes clear that they don't want Nancy sleeping there because a Negro can't sleep in the Compson home. That's unheard of. One of the fruits of this racial prejudice is that the, I think this is the reading of it, is that the blacks turn in on themselves. Jesus is going to kill Nancy, she's convinced, because she's carrying a white man's child. It's not his child. He wants to kill Nancy. He wants to kill Stovall. And Nancy, we see towards the end, turns in on herself. Her whole attitude, to me, it's very Calvinistic. She, there's no sense of a merciful God. She sees this as something. Being murdered is what's owed her. She finally resigns herself to it. So there's this very dark Calvinistic I hope all of, I, hope, I hope this all speaks to you. The older I get, the more aware I am of Calvin in our lives in ways I don't think is sufficiently known. Um, <clears throat> I want to look at a couple of passages, but a couple of things about the form of the story. It's narrated by Quentin. It, it goes back to a time when he was nine, but he narrates it, as the opening makes clear, 15 years later. Now here's one of the discrepancies in the story because if he narrates it, it means he's 24 years old. But we know from Sound of the Fury that he dies when he's 20. Remember, he was born in um, 1890, and he committed suicide in 1910 at Harvard when he was 20. So. That's another reason why I, it's hard for me to believe that this story wasn't done before Sound of the Fury and Faulkner just forgot it. So the backdrop are these racial problems between blacks and whites, the, the horrible injustices that they express, and the ironies between parents and children. And once again, 
we're made aware of a sad problem. The mother is not present in some ways. And she just feels sorry for herself. And in some ways, probably worse in my mind, the father's not. And I, I, I'm, I'm probably doing a lot of this on the basis of sound and the fury, but let me just give one example here. Remember at the very end when, the, when they're leaving Nancy's cabin? They're walking away and, and they can hear her lamentation, her, her, her singing some dirge. And, and, and like kids, they're squabbling about being afraid or something else and Caddy's calling Jason a scaredy cat and he said he's not. That's part of the irony. And by the way, it seems to me that's an element of grotesque comedy because you've got this tragic story involving Nancy and the kids squabbling about who, you're scaredy cat, no you're, you know. The, the, here, let me name it before I go on because I don't want to forget. That's an ex a, one of those beautiful examples of counterpoint that I know of in literature, what we're getting in the story. You know, and you know what counterpoint is. It's, it, in, in music, it's when somebody presents a theme, Mozart or whoever, Beethoven, and then presents a counter theme that runs with it, that plays variations off of it so it can get subtle. But counterpoint is, is an element of painting, it's an element of music. Here it's done beautifully with art because he keeps setting these two worlds against each other, Nancy and Stovell, Nancy and the Compson family. So these horrible injustices that so clearly have become a part of their lives and they're not even aware of them. They don't see it all. They don't see any of it. And the same kind of discrepancy between parents and kids. When they come away from the cabin, they're squabbling and the father says nothing. His only word is a, is a reprimand of Candace when he says, Candace, be quiet, and he uses her formal name. Why is that? I'm not... Wait, wait, I'm not a nigger. You're worse, Caddy said. You're a tattletale. If something was to jump out, you'd be scareder than a nigger. I wouldn't, Jason said. You'd cry, Caddy said. Caddy, father said. I wouldn't, Jason said. Scaredy cat, Caddy. You could, this is what kids do. I mean, it's, it's so beautifully done. Where was the father? I, I can't imagine a situation like this without sitting my kids down and saying, here's what's going on with Nancy. This is what's happening in our world. This father's saying nothing. So the parents aren't there. The, the kids are left alone to do what kids do. When I look around me, I mean, at our culture, it, it's as if most everybody assumes kids will grow up on their own. You just let them. I mean, truly, if, if, think about it. If nobody has a sense of virtue and you're a parent, what do you do today? I mean, I, th I think you feed them, call them, you scold them, correct them sometimes, but that's it. What do kids... What help? Our kids are in such desperate need of help today. What in the modern world gives it to them? Let me read a couple of the lines here because I want to get to, um, on page four, wait, I want to read the beginning because this is one of the major changes from Sound of the Fury. Monday's no different from any other weekday in Jefferson now. The streets are paved now and the telephone and electric companies are cutting down more and more of the shade trees the water oaks, the maples, and locusts, and elms, to make room for iron poles bearing clusters of bloated and ghostly and bloodless grapes. And we have a city laundry. There's that we. Remember that, what did I call it? Communal, anonymous, the anonymous communal, and that, that sense of identity with others that you don't find in the north. Here it is in Quentin. That sense of identity with a community. And we have a, how, how, 
I hope everybody, what a wonderful corrective for our hubris, our pride. To learn to see that we're a part of other people that aren't always striving, who may be poor or lonely, that we're a part of them, seems to be one of the greatest gifts we have, to, to know that, I mean, there are times when I look around at people, because I've spent my whole life striving to do, if I was going to do something, I was going to do it well, and I look around and see people who don't do that, and they're going to go to heaven. Am I? <laughs> it's a scary thought. Um, uh, there's a wonderful corrective to our pride in knowing we're linked to everybody else. We have a city laundry which makes the rounds on Monday morning, gathering the bundles of clothes into bright colored, specially made motor cars. The soiled wearing of a whole week now flees apparition-like behind alert and irritable electric horns with a long diminishing noise of rubber and asphalt like tearing silk and even the Negro women who still take in white people's washing after the old custom fetch and deliver it in automobiles. But 15 years ago, and now we're back in the story. What does that opening paragraph do for this story? Well, it situates you right in the middle of that culture, doesn't it? What's the change from 15 years ago? How are things different? But cars. be specific, huh? The cars now cars. are more prevalent. What do you and do with a line like this? Laundry. To make room for iron poles. That is, trees were there before, electricity. Telephone poles? Yeah, Telephone but look at the, for iron poles bearing clusters of bloated and ghostly and bloodless grapes. Mm -hmm. What's the effect of a line like that? Wow. It's, it seems like anti-modernity, but I mean, it's, something's changing, but it's still the worst. Right. You know, grapes, by, by the way, source of wine, but grapes are juicy and these are bloodless and bloated. It's, it's an inhuman apparition, fleeing apparition-like. It's become mechanical, impersonal, and lifeless. Nothing organic. It's, it's bloodless grapes. It used to be trees. It's, it's an agrarian world. There's moved, this is after the war. We're passing from an agrarian world into a technological world that's becoming inhuman. No? Irritable electric horn. I mean, it's an awful picture. No? I mean, think about it. Water, oaks, maples, locusts, and elms to make room for poles bearing clusters of bloated and ghostly and bloodless grapes. You can picture it, right? These bulbs that look like big but bloodless. I mean, it's, it's a, almost an infernal world. It's a scary world. Go on over to page... Nancy's been cooking for the Compson family because Dilsey's been sick. Um, and she's made it clear that she's frightened of what Jason will do to her. And Jason is, Jesus. I mean, sorry, Jesus, what Jesus will do to her. It sounds like a frightening person. The lane was always dark. This is where Jason got scared or on Halloween, Caddy said. I didn't, Jason said. Can't answer racial. His answer is, can't she do something? They said she was Jesus' mother. We don't know um, from what's said. Yes, you did, Caddy said. So the father's talking to Nancy about the terror that she feels, and the kids are squabbling about being scared or not. I mean, don't, 
it, that's an aspect of grotesque comedy, that the distance between them is so great and they're not aware of it. And the parents aren't helping. They're doing nothing to close that distance. Um, yes, you did. She, so the, the parents are going on. Caddy's picking up with her brother. Yes, you did, Caddy said. You were scared and in front of you. You were scared and in PP, even scarier than niggers. I mean, that comes out of her mouth like it's nothing. Can't nobody do nothing with him, Nancy said. So here are the parents again, black, white. You see, I done woke up the devil in him and ain't but one thing going to lay it down again. Well, he's gone now, Father said. There's nothing for you to do to be afraid of. And if you just let white men alone, whose fault is it? Huh? Yeah. God. I mean, it's just... And these kids are great. Is there any wonder what's producing this? Let what white men alone. I mean, this is so natural. This is what kids would... Let what men, white men alone, Caddy said. How let them alone? He ain't gone nowhere, Nancy said. I can feel him. I can feel him now in this lane. He hearing his talk, every word, hid somewhere, waiting. I ain't seen him, and I ain't going to see him again, but once more, with that razor in his mouth, that razor on that string down his back, inside his shirt, and then I ain't going to be even surprised. I wasn't scared. This is amazing, isn't it? I mean, we're in two worlds, but it, it, is there a better example of grotesque comedy? The, the two worlds could not be more different, and yet they're simultaneous with each other. Well, all I could do is, if there's not a question what I would do, I don't care how young, because if the option is that she's um, scared her than niggers, if you're, I mean, I would, give, I would give some sense to the kids that this is what's behind this, and you hope the kids will gradually learn. As they, I mean, I've, I've had talks with evil from the outset of all of our kids. I mean, they're going to, and, and, and remember, remember, God, it's so, remember in Santa Fury, what was their attitude towards Gramity's death, Damity's death? They didn't want the kids to know. They didn't want them to experience death. How good was that? That's a part of, and look at what happens. Quentin's gone, the father drinks himself to, I mean, the, to not, death is a part of our life. If we don't deal with it, we're not going to be able to live the way we should. And Sound of the Fury, the people do everything they can not to deal with it. And here we're seeing the same thing. And they're blaming Nancy. I wasn't scared, Jason said. If you'd behave yourself, you'd kept out of, kept him out of, kept out of this, Father said. But all right now, he's probably in St. Louis. Just pass it off. Probably got another wife by now, probably. You can see this dismissive... Um, and she goes on, um, when, when the father says something about taking up with another woman, Nancy, if he has it, better not find out about it, Nancy said, I'd stand right there over them, and every time he wrapped her, I'd cut that arm off. The kids are hearing this, what are you going to do, leave them that? I mean, I, you have to say something. I'd cut that arm off, I'd cut his head off, and I'd slit her belly, and I'd just, hush, father said, slit whose belly, Nancy? What else could a child ask? I wasn't scared, and here we go. I mean, it's just, the, I, the, this is so beautifully done. You've got the kids and the parents dealing with two different levels of reality and absolutely no connection, no way to connect them at all. Going over on um, page six.
deals, he's back cooking again, and Nancy comes, and um, at the top of six, Dilsey cooked supper too, and that night just before dark, Nancy came into the kitchen. How do you know he's back? Dilsey said, you ain't seen him. Jesus is a nigger, Jason said. I can feel him, Nancy said. I can feel him laying yonder in the ditch. Tonight, Dilsey said. <clears throat> is he here tonight? Dilsey's a nigger too, Jason said. You try to eat something. It's accepted. Dilsey's not going to say anything to Jason. That's what Jason's grown up. Um, Try to eat something, Dilsey said. I don't want nothing, Nancy said. I ain't a nigger, Jason said. Drink some coffee, Dilsey said. She poured it out. Anyway, it goes down. She says down below, I hellborn child, Nancy said. I won't be nothing soon. I'm going back to where I came from. There's that note of fatalism that we hear in Nancy all the way through this. On page nine, there's that interesting description when she, remember she bribes the kids to go over because she doesn't want to be alone. She's, she, wait, here. So, the whites exploit the back, blacks. Here's that contractual thing. You exploit them. She's exploiting them. What she's doing is bribing them, using them. So she has, so she isn't quite as afraid when she goes back. She's not alone. And you know how that goes. It's, it's humiliating. Jason tries to manipulate her. I mean, he, he, what will I get out of it if I, you know, and God, it's just, anyway, on page nine, there's this moment when, um, when Quentin, looking back, remember he's the narrator describing it. She came and sat in a chair before the hearth. There was a little fire there. Nancy built it up when it was already hot inside. She built a good blaze. She told a story. She talked like her eyes looked, like her eyes watching us, and her voice talking to us did not belong to her, like she was living somewhere else, waiting somewhere else. She was outside the cabin. What a stunning description. If you're there trying to manipulate kids to keep you comfortable, but you're terrified by the unknown, you know, wherever Jesus is. I mean, you've got a perfect image of a schizophrenic. I mean, it's a divided self. She's there doing one thing while her terror locates her imagination outside. So it's a sorrowful picture of a woman completely divided by her circumstances. The Compsons. Who's the only one aware of what's going on here? There's only one person aware. It's the poet. How else could he do it? Are the Compsons? The father, the mother, the kids? I'm not even sure that Quentin is, even though he's writing it, you know. On page 11, the father finally comes to get the kids, um, and he tries to reassure Nancy that, that Jesus isn't there. And she says, I got the sign, Nancy said. What sign? I got it. It was on the table when I come in. It was a hog bone with blood meat still on it, laying by the lamp. He's out there. When you all walk out that door, I gone. Gone where, Nancy? Caddy said. I'm not a tattletale. God, that is so what Faulkner did here. Nonsense, Father said. He out there, Nancy said. He looking through that window this minute, waiting for you all to go. Then I gone. Nonsense. Look up your house and we'll lock up your house and we'll take you to Aunt Ranch's. Won't, won't do no good, Nancy said. She didn't look at Father now, but he looked down at her at her long, limp, moving hands. Putting it off won't do no good. What do you want to do? I don't know, Nancy said. I can't do nothing. Just put it off. And that, that don't do no good. I reckon, I reckon it belonged to me. I reckon I'm going to get ain't no more than mine. 
get what, Caddy says, what's yours? Nothing, Father said. She really accepts it. She's resigned to it because she believes she's, it's owed her. Is this a woman acting with any sense of a loving, merciful God? Um, let me stop there. We have that picture of the, of the family you know, crossing the ditch and listening to Nancy who's singing out her window. And why do you think Faulkner ends it the way he does? You know, they're hearing her sing this lament. And as they do, Jason says, I'm not a nigger. And Caddy says, you're worse. You're scareder than a nigger. I wouldn't. You cry, Caddy, Father. I wouldn't, Jason said. Scaredy cat, Caddy. This kind of bit. Why does he end it that way? Say? They're just going on yep. with their lives. Yeah. You know, and now How good is that as an artist? Time. Why is that good? Or I'm assuming maybe I shouldn't. Is that good or bad? What's They're blind to it. It's, huh? They're blind to it, the concept. No, I'm talking about as an artist. Why is it he there's Faulkner, I've said this before, Faulkner never makes a judgment. He does very little telling. He's always showing. He just presents things as they are. So he does, like Dickens, he doesn't intrude and tell the reader, hold my hand, and you know. He just shows things as they are. And he ends the story with this scene. I wonder well, what happens to Nancy. Yeah. Why does he do, is it good or bad to leave it this way? Bev, what would, take your comment, good or bad is to, for I think him. it's good because it makes us think. Yeah. It, it makes us wonder. Yeah, yeah. Not only that, I mean, he leaves us with something dark because we know it's going to go on that way. Yeah. We're watching the kids, it'll extend in the future that, um, that this counterpoint that he's shown is a way of life. It's a reflection of a way of life. Um, he, doesn't need to make, he doesn't need to end anything to make a judgment on it. The family condemns itself. I mean, they bring, they show that. What they do judges themselves. It's just amazing what he does to them. Can we take a few minutes with, um, I'll try to make this short. The back drop, the back story of Flowering Judas is the revolution, the communist revolution in South America. I think you're all familiar with it. The communists took over and closed down the churches and began persecuting the Christian world, largely Catholic. And the story is set in that period. So um, Bragioni is a communist leader, and Laura spends this evening talking with him. It's clear that he wants more. Um, but And what emerges with the two of them put together is that, is that both of them hold the same ideals. Um, they want a political belief that corresponds to Christianity, but that promises salvation now. So the two line up with each other, but Christianity points to the other world. Communism offers salvation here and now. The cost of it is a war, right? But everybody, everybody looks to communism the way they look to Christianity. They're looking for relief from their poverty. They're looking for saviors. 
Bragioni clearly is a savior. One of the great ironies of the story is he doesn't care at all. He's reached, he's long past a point of disillusionment and so is Laura because they're watching the collapse of that revolution. So the backdrop of the story is the, is the, uh, the war effort to, to make socialism a fact of life as if it would answer all problems, all poverty. And we know from historically that socialism, what its effects are, they're horrible. Um, both Bragioni and Lohr are alike in lots of ways. They're both wounded, they're both disillusioned. They see the revolution as a way of assuaging pain, of taking it away. She avoids Christ, so does he. She even avoids the church. She's a Catholic. And every once in a while, um, it, it, it says she sneaks into a church. She doesn't want to be seen in it. She doesn't want anybody to identify with it. And she sneaks out. Bragioni has come to use the revolution for himself. Even if he started out with high ideals, now he he uses the revolution to indulge himself, to eat, drink, and have sex. He's estranged from his wife temporarily. He comes to Laura, and he says the, 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 <laughs> he, the ultimate goal of the revolution in his mind was freedom. But freedom for him was freedom to do what he wanted, which meant having sex with other women. And his wife could not do that. She's, she's tormented because she has to love only one man, and so they're estranged. Bragioni, in a sense, is a parody of Christ. He presents himself as a savior. The, the people look to him as a savior. Eugenio looked at him as a savior. But his whole attitude is he doesn't care about them. He doesn't go to the prison to visit. She takes narcotics to the prisoners to help assuage their pain. And Eugenio dies because he can't wait. Everybody's left in despair because the, the hope for outcome has not materialized. So people are left disillusioned, disappointed. Eugenio takes drugs as, as an answer to his own despair. And remember, the name Eugenio means what? Eucharist, Eugenesis, new beginning. The irony of that, right? Here's the new beginning. And he kills himself. I just, um, I'm just going to read a couple of passages here, but here's my test. This is a serious test now. You guys, what tense is the story written in? Don't look. Tell me from memory. What tense? Huh? Present. Present. Have we read a story in all the reading that we've done in this class in anything but the past tense? By the way, the past tense is usually called the preterite. When you, if you read a story, it's always in the past tense. It, Homer, Virgil, Dante, every story is written in the past tense. The preterite is, a, is the past tense tense that we use to describe an action that's completed in the past. The story's over, it's done. And we, the storyteller. Um, Nancy would set her bundle on the top. Look at, um, it opens, that evening sun, in the Monday is no different from any other day. It describes the streets now. The rest of the story, past tense. They would fetch, they did this, they did this, yeah. Why, let me just leave that question hanging because I want to come back to it because it's, to me it's extraordinary. She writes the whole thing in the present tense. 
There are only two times when Laura looks back into the past, and both of them have to do with love relationships, these two men that wanted to make love to her. Both of them have to do with love, and both of them are rejected. She does everything she can to live in the present. She wants nothing to do with the past or any sense of time references outside of the present moment. She lives completely in the present. So she doesn't have to deal with consequences, time events. Okay. Um, I, 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 I just want to look a... I mean, on page two, just take a look, um, middle paragraph. Instead, she looks at Bragioni frankly and clearly like a good child who understands the rules of behavior. Go down. She was born Roman Catholic, and in spite of her fear of being seen by someone who might make a scandal of it, she slips down again into a crumbling little church. Go down. She has encased herself in a set of principles derived from her early training, leaving no detail of gesture or personal taste and touch. She has that Catholic sense of scrupulosity. She's going to have everything just so. For this reason, she will not wear lace made on machines. Remember, because the whole, the whole Industrial Revolution is predicated on the fact that machines will equalize labor and do away with class distinctions. This is her private heresy, for in her special group, the machine is sacred and will be the salvation of the workers. She loves fine lace. And there's a tiny edge of fluted cobwet on this collar, which is one of 20 precisely like folded in blue tissue paper on the upper drawer. Very precise, very Detailed. yeah, fastidious. Mm -hmm. um, at the bottom of two, um, it's true, everything turns to dust in his hand. He's disillusioned because everything he fought for is crumbling before his eyes. He sighs in his leather belt, top of page three, Cracks like a saddle girth. I am disappointed in everything as it comes. Everything. He shakes his head. You poor thing will be disappointed too. You are born for it. We are more alike than you realize in something. The great irony is, is that it's true. In lots of ways they are. Um, wait and see. Someday you'll remember what I've told you. You'll know that Bragioni was your friend. Go down. Middle of the page. It describes Laura taking food and drugs to the people. If the prisoners confuse night and day and complain, dear little Laura, time doesn't pass in this infernal hole, and I won't know when it's time to sleep unless I have a reminder. She brings them their favorite narcotics and says in a tone that does not wound them with pity, tonight will really be night for you. Think of the irony that... Night. Yeah, night. Eugenio's going to die. That's an eternal night. Um... If the prisoners confuse night and day and complain, these are prisoners locked up in a way of life. She's referred to as a prisoner later, as if she's locked herself up in the present. Tonight will be the night for you. And though her Spanish amuses them, they find her comforting, useful. If they lose patience in all faith and curse the slowness of their friends in coming to their rescue with money and influence, they trust her not to repeat everything. And if she inquires, where do you think we can find money or influence? There's a certain answer. Well, there's Bragioni. Why doesn't he do something? All of these people have been looking for a savior. It's Marx. It's bringing the kingdom down into world and using political means to achieve it. That's the great heresy of the modern world. Ba Obama had Marx in his background. 
to bring the kingdom here, to make everybody equal, um, to take away differences so that everybody could get along. That's the great push of the modern world, e even though 200 years of socialism has showed failures of it everywhere. Go on over. Um, she, on page five, <clears throat> Second paragraph down, she's pleasantly disturbed by the abstract, unhurried watchfulness of his black eyes, which will in time turn easily towards another object. She tells herself that throwing the flower was a mistake. She's describing what her response to one of these lovers, one of the two lovers. For she's 22 years old and knows better, but she refuses to regret it and persuades herself that her negation of all external events as they occur is a sign that she's gradually perfecting herself in the stoicism she strives to cultivate against the disaster she fears, though she cannot. Everything she does is to negate the world. She's trying to cultivate a stoicism so nothing affects her. She is not at home in the world. Every day she teaches children who remain strangers to her, though she loves their tender and round hands and their charming opportunistic savagery. She knocks at unfamiliar doors, not knowing whether a friend or a stranger shall answer. And even if a known face emerges from the sour gloom of that unknown interior, Still, it's the face of a stranger. She won't let herself get close to anybody. No matter what this stranger says to her, nor what her message to him, the very cells of her flesh reject knowledge and kinship in one monotonous word. No, no, no. She draws her strength from this one holy talismanic word, which does not suffer to be, to be led into evil. Denying everything, she may walk anywhere in safety. She looks at everything without amazement. Now, let me go back to my question. Why does Porter write this entire story in the present tense? Now go to the back page. The only two times she slips into the past is when she looks back at those two love relationships. <clears throat> Bragioni leaves, and you know that almost everything about the story goes into her interior. We keep going inside of her, her thoughts, her awareness of things. She gets ready for bed. Um, Laura takes off her surge, present tense. She turns her head. Numbers tick in her brain, present tense. If you would sleep, you must not remember, you must not remember anything. The children will say to, tomorrow, good morning, my teacher, the poor prisoners who come every day bringing flowers to their jailer. One, two, she tries to count herself to sleep. It's monstrous to confuse love with revolution, night with day, life with death. Ah, Eugenio, remember, new birth, Eugenio. Now pay attention here. <laughs> remember I've been saying how important it is for us to learn how to read well when we don't. We just don't read very well, I don't think. The tolling of the midnight bell is a signal, but what does it mean? Get up, Laura, and follow me. Come out of your sleep, out of your bed, out of this strange house. What are you doing in the sound? This is Eugenio, some voice speaking to her in her dream. Remember, Mrs. May had two dreams. So, what to call it? Offerings? The spirit? Something intruding in our lives? What are you doing in this house? Without a word, without fear, she rose and reached for Eugenio's hand. What tense? Past. Past, Past tense. Yeah. She rose and reached for Eugenio's hand, but he eluded her with a sharp, sly smile and drifted away. This is, 
This is not all. You shall see murder, he said. Follow me. I will show you a new country, but it's far away and we must hurry. No, said Laura. There's that talismanic word. Not unless you take my hand. No. She clung first to the stair rail and then to the topmost branch of the Judas tree that bent down slowly and set her upon the earth. Remember, the Judas tree is just a tree that, of a certain kind that happened to be named after Judas when he hung himself on it. And set her upon the earth and then to the rocky ledge of a cliff and then to the jagged wave of a sea that was not water but a desert of crumbling stone. Where are you taking me? She asked in wonder but without fear. To death and it's a long way off and we must hurry, said Eugenio. No, said Laura, not unless you take my hand then eat these flowers. <laughs> take, eat. Where is it? Does everybody hear where we are right now? Where are we? In the mass. Okay. Did everybody hear? The, the mass is the backdrop to this. Um, no, said Laura, unless you take my hand. Then eat these flowers. Poor prisoner. She's the prisoner. Said Eugenio in a voice of pity. Take and eat. Where are we? Yes. Eucharist. Yep, in the Eucharist. Take and eat. And from the Judas tree, he stripped the warm, bleeding flowers and held them to her lips. She saw that his hand was fleshless, a cluster of small, white, petrified branches, and his eye sockets were without light. But she ate the flowers greedily, for they satisfied both hunger and thirst. Murder, said Eugenio, and cannibal. This is my body and my blood. Laura cried, No and at the sound of her own voice she awoke trembling and was afraid to sleep again. Everything is in the present tense except the dream. When she comes out of the dream, what tense is it? It's still past. She passed. Cried. She awoke. She passed. passed. I'm past tense, right? Yes. So everything is in the present tense until the dream, past tense. When she comes out of it, she doesn't come out of it into a present tense, she comes out into the past. What's going on? What is the porter doing? This is about reading. I don't want to hear all this stuff about grammar and lack of punctuation. Faulkner goes on for 10 pages. We're, we're supposed to be learning something else about reading here. What's she doing? What's she doing? Murderer. Prisoner, murder, count. This is my body and my blood. In reference to Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, related to the story, what's going on? <laughs> I have no idea. But this, it's a Judas tree that she touches. That she what? It's a Judas tree that she touches on her right. way out. Right. And Judas was a murderer. A lot of symbolism here. There is. By, by the way, it's a good word. It, a lot. Why, why does Porter put all of this in the present tense? It's her way. This is t amazing. T truly amazing. It's one of the ways. Fogner doesn't make a judgment. He just presents things. It's, it, it's her way of showing that Laura is trying to keep herself in a timeless present in order to avoid a world of consequences, a pastor. She's doing everything she can to avoid Christ. We can say some people hide, some people stay busy in their work. 
She stays in the present doing all she can not to remember, to not have any frame of reference in time. Remember Eliot's lines in opening of Burt Norton? Time present, time future. In, unless we're outside of the present moment, we have no way of redeeming ourselves. She committed herself to a revolution that the earthly counterpart, the political counterpart of, of Christianity. It offers salvation. And she's reached a point of disillusionment. The, uni the revolution is failing. It's failed everybody. She's giving drugs to people. Think about the drug culture in, in South America in the last hundred years after communism took over. What a modern, what an indictment of the modern world. She's doing everything she can to stay in the present, to lock herself up there. And the dream comes. It seems to me that this is really interesting. This is, if Christ is the Eucharist, and we look to him for life, and the sin we commit against somebody else is a betrayal. We betray somebody else. What do we do? What do we make of that person? The body and blood. We, that is, we crucify Christ again. This is my body and my blood. Lord cried, no. That is, he's become an offering because of the way she used him. So we've got this extraordinary inversion. Christ offers himself to take us out of sin. Here, Laura's presented it as committing an act of betrayal that is a betrayal of Christ and has as its effect making this other man the body and blood, the sacrificial lamb for her. So what she's showing is that the implications of the Eucharist are we take life from it, but the opposite just is true, that that we actually make of other people body and blood for ourselves in an act of betrayal. And she, she cries, screaming no in the sound of her voice. And here's the question, she, the whole, is that clear? It's a pretty dark, and, and remember, the, remember the dreams that come to people, Mrs. May, that very often dreams are revelations. They, are, they reveal something to us. The question is, are we open to them? Do we hear? Do we see? Are we willing? When she comes out of the dream, she comes out of the dream into past tense. Why? She's not in the present anymore. It's, I mean, the, the implication seems to be that she was shaken out of that present. It's like those grotesque moments of grotesque comedy in O'Connor that, that she was shaken out of her world by the revelation. Pretty powerful yeah. story. Well, if, if, if the present was a defense against becoming aware, because you have to be aware of both past and present, uh, it, it, it collapsed for her. She got the present. back into, into reality. Right. I think, that's what, I think that's what she's doing. Otherwise, I have no reason, I, I have no sense of why she used the present the way she does, because she uses it beautifully. That's not an accident. And we're taken out of that time in the dream. When she comes out of the dream, she's in the preterite tense. She's in that that tense. It's to me, it's like the Flannery O'Connor um, grotesque comedy moments. You know that that here's grace. So once again, we're we're being offered a story of a modern 
It's set against a socialistic background, all the hope that was put in to this socialist revolution, this communist revolution, the way in which people turned away from the church to it for this immediate salvation that wouldn't involve suffering. She does everything she can to avoid the cross, suffering. But then she has this nightmare. And to me, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an offering of grace, as it was for Mrs. May. Something comes to her in sleep that reveals something to her about herself that she obviously has not wanted to see. And the effect of it is to bring her into time. Does she become aware that she's part of the crucifixion? Or that, should that Christ is being crucified? I don't know if, how aware she is, Tom, but because we don't get any, we just got the dream. You know, we don't have her reflecting on it afterwards. But the, the, the nature of the dream presents her as a cannibal, that she's eating the body and blood of another person, that she's using. So the, the oh, Eucharist is inverted. That's the nature of the dream. And it's so frightening for her to see that. that this is pretty stark stuff we've been looking at. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. Thank yeah? you so much. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go home and cut my wrist. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> it, but isn't this extraordinary? I mean, these writers are showing, that what I mean, they're showing grace in the modern world. Can there be anything more violent in a modern world? Or, no, stop. Was there any more, anything more violent in the ancient world than putting God on a cross? It's Christians. We, we live in a burst. Remember what Thomas Mann said. Grotesque comedy is the antidote, the corrective of a, of a bourgeois world. If the, if the crucifixion is at the center of our faith, we should have less trouble dealing with it in a bourgeois world. But everything about the bourgeois world puts us to sleep. So we've got these, I mean, to me it's extraordinary. If you look at what Flannery O'Connor did and what somebody like Porter does in this, I, I don't, it's doing what the prophets did with the addition of Christ, that a spirit that the old prophets didn't quite have emerges with Christ. We see it in the crucifixion and everything he did. And in all these stories, we've got these revelations, these Christ figures, the bull with the wreath on his head, the, the, the piercing of the heart, this frightening, terrifying dream of, being a, of seeing herself as a cannibal feeding by betraying another person. It's like she's betraying Christ, feeding on things, instead of offering herself as the consecration, that she gives her life. She ends up feeding another, and then she well, comes then out. Wouldn't you say that she becomes aware of her own sin? I—that's my reading. I mean, we don't get any of that, but but she wakes her, and she's in the past tense. So my, you know, it's like the other, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know it's it's hard to believe she's not going to be changed. That well, something that happened. Can't, she can't go to sleep. She's afraid yeah. to go back to sleep because right. it, it tells you that she has changed. Because if, if she's completely separated herself from everything that's going around, she wouldn't be afraid to go to yeah. sleep. Remember that line in, in uh, Mrs. May in Greenleaf? Her sight had been restored, and what was presented to her was unbearable. That so many of these stories are bringing us to those Socratic, elliptic, you know, aporia moments that. These 
terrifying moments that I think most of us want to avoid because to hold them inside is shaking, to, you know, to, to go through a day shaking with these things. Is, those are moments of grace, or they can be. Okay, let's stop. <laughs>